we are in the gospel according to Luke. Turn there with me. We're in Luke chapter 12. Open your Bibles. We're reading from the ESV. There are Bibles in the back. Um, if you need one, you grab, go ahead and grab one. We're continuing through Luke 12. We're looking at verses 35 through 48. Luke 12, 35 through 48. Here now is God's infallible, authoritative, inspired word to us. Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his fat master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But those who did not know and did, not, and did what deserved the beating will receive a lighter beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Our series through this gospel account is called Mission to the World. As we're walking with Jesus, we can see clearly that he's the God of and Savior of all people. Jesus the Christ, God the Son, sent on mission by God the Father, being filled with God the Spirit, declaring that the King of the kingdom has come to repent, to turn, and to follow Jesus. It's a call to salvation, a call to discipleship. It's a call to mission. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go as you are going, literally. Make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Followers of Christ are called to join him on mission as spirit-filled disciples, evangelizing, meaning sharing the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, and baptizing them. Have you been baptized here this morning? Have you are a follower of Christ? Have you followed through with this command? If you haven't, come and see one of the pastors. We'll set you up. We'll get you baptized in obedience to Christ baptizing them, and then teaching them the word of God, teaching them the commands of Christ. Part of that command is to be sent out on mission. The question is not, are we 
what are we supposed to be doing? The question is, are we doing what we're called to do? That's the question. The scripture is clear that we are called to glorify God in all that we do and say by living on mission with him. He actually here at King's Chapel, that's our, that's our, uh, our mission statement. We exist to what? Glorify God, make much of God, trust in the Lord, make him known. How? By living on mission with him and making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation to community, community both monastically as we gather and missionally as we are sent. And Jesus has been pressing into his disciples uh, these past couple of weeks what it really means to look like his disciple, a follower, living on mission. He's told them already of his suffering and his rejection. And he'd be killed and on the third day rise again. He's demonstrating the gospel and declaring the gospel by teaching them and exercising authority and power over demons, disease, and death itself. He's been demonstrating compassion to the outcasts and the marginalized, to the rejected, even sent his disciples. You remember, first to 12 and then 72, on a gospel mission there where, where he gave them authority to demonstrate and declare the gospel with power and authority as well. Rebuke the religious leaders of their hypocrisy. He's taught us not to fear man, but to fear God. Have reverence and awe of him and him alone. He's taught them about prayer. He's been teaching them about priorities. The past couple of weeks, we've learned, uh, as he's taught us, about what life is, is, uh, what life is and what it consists of. Chapter 12, verse 15. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, is what he said. And he's talking about the pursuit of possession, excessive concern and worry, even of daily necessities, will bring anxiety and fear and worry. Jesus says, don't worry about, don't be anxious about your life. Life is more than food, remember? Look at the ceremonial unclean ravens, God feeds them. You're much more valuable than the birds. Consider the lilies, they're temporal. And God still arrays them, arrays them with beauty. How much more will he be given to you, those who have eternal life? Life, Jesus says, about seeking the kingdom. And these things will be added onto you, verse 31 of chapter 12. Seeking the kingdom is not being, trying to be rich in this life, but to be rich in heaven, rich toward God, he tells us. Seeking the kingdom of God means treasuring Christ, God, and freeing ourselves from the pull of materialism. We ended last week the, uh, at the, in the middle of chapter 12 with the command to be generous. If you remember, chapter 12, verse, um, let's see, let me turn the page here. 38, sell your possession, give to the needy, right? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, verse 34. So we said at the end last week that when we place our trust in the love of God and the care of God. When my life and my value, my purpose is rooted in Christ who's the king of the kingdom. He's my soul satisfying treasure. I'm seeking the kingdom and that will be evidence. If that's true, that'll be evidenced by my generosity. And that will be evidenced also because it will replace covetousness and, and anxiety and fear. I'm seeking the kingdom. I'm trusting in the Lord. He's my greatest treasure. Today we learn that the disciples who have submitted to King Jesus are seeking the kingdom of God, whose priority is to treasure Christ above all treasures, to walk in mission with him and declaring demonstrated gospel, must do so in the context of being ready. Being ready. First you think when you read these, that text that I read earlier, you think where is the connection? Well, there's the connection. All this is taking place and we are called to, to be ready. Be watchful. Be faithful. 
Number one. Verse 35, stay dressed. Be ready for action. Keep the lamps burning. Be like men who's waiting for their master to come home to knock on that door. So they're ready for him when he comes home from that wedding feast. So the, the seekers of the kingdom of God who are eagerly awaiting that day when, when, when God will give them the kingdom, that certain but unexpected coming will wait for them, will wait for him with faith and vigilance and, and readiness. In verse 35, the English translation makes it sound like, you know, you got to stay dressed, right? Stay dressed for action uh, and, you know, like Motel 6, right? Leave the light on. <clears throat> In the original language, the original hearers would understand that phrase as let your loins be girded about. What that means was, in that day, you had loose flowing robes men would wear, and they had a sash. And whenever you were prepared to run uh, or to move, or as this text tells us, the servants are, are ready and waiting at home, you would, you would take the cloak that you wore and you would tuck it into your belt, into the sash. And that would indicate that you're ready now to, to move with speed and agility. And lamps would be burning so that you would see in the dark. That's what he says. Stay dressed, gird your loins, lift up that cloak, stuff it in your stash, be ready to move, keep the light on. It's a picture that comes from even from the Old Testament. In Exodus 12, the instruction that God gave to those in the Passover as they get ready to leave Egypt, being freed from slavery, the Jewish people, Exodus chapter 12, you should eat with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on, and with your staff in your hand, be ready. First thing I want us to know in this passage is it's a command, not a suggestion. It's a command. It's imperative. Be ready. Be watchful. Be faithful. Be ready. When the master comes home from the wedding feast, be ready. Remember, there's no cell phones, right? No emails. No text messages. Can't send the master like, hey, I'll be home in 20 minutes. It's their responsibility, the slaves, the servants, to be ready at night, all night, all day, and be ready. Wedding feasts in those days could last a couple of days, could be even a week. But keep the light on. Keep the, keep the lamps going. Don't run out of oil. Don't let me come home and it's dark and I can't see where I'm going. And his ready servants who watch for their master will be blessed. Look at what it says in verse 37. Blessed are those, a beatitude. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. The master who comes home has his servants waiting, slaves waiting, is pleased how delightful it would be when he gets there. It's not dark. He can find his way into the house. The lights are on. They're waiting. They open the door. It's a snack waiting, hopefully. Something to eat. Obviously, Jesus is talking about his return. How his followers need to be perpetually ready for that event. Notice what the text doesn't say. Go ahead, spend your day and your time and do whatever you want. Live as you see fit. Or as we saw earlier in the text in chapter 12, build bigger barns for all your possessions. Or wait for a war to break out in the Middle East between or in Israel and then get ready. It just so happens that because of this war going on in Israel, against Hamas, Hamas against Israel. There's so much talk about end times these days. Family, there are a lot of false teachers, a lot of false prophets. There's no such thing as a prophet. 
This prophecy is a gift, but the days of the prophet as a role is over. Ephesians is very clear. They, they're the foundation of the church. Anyone says, I am a prophet of God, run. That's what you need to do. Uh, but you got false prophets, Jonathan Kahn, I'll point them out, and others who are capitalizing on this war, and they search the Old Testament scriptures to find the verses to fit their narrative, their eschatological point of view, and write books and make lots of money because people are running to buy them. When Jesus says be ready, he's not asking them to become engaged in some end time prognosis or some sort of prediction. If you look at the Old Testament, all you're doing is looking for clues and warnings and, and future events between Israel and Palestine, and that's what you're, you're, you're focused on. You're reading the Old Testament in a wrong way. And you're reading the New Testament, and if you're doing that in the wrong way, including the book of Revelation. I mean, how many times, sorry to get fired up, but I am, how many times do people have to get it wrong? And we still go back to the well and attempt to do some sort of prophetic versions of the Bible, some code, or something to the return of Christ. Especially the past couple hundred years. Jesus' exhortation, be ready, was not meant to try and figure out and decipher the signs of the time to determine when he's coming back. That could not be further from what Jesus wanted in response to the command to be ready. Jesus makes it crystal clear, verse 40. No one knows. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Are we getting closer every day? Absolutely. Does the Bible warn us about the approach of Christ and it'll be marked by increased false teaching? There's certain signs depending on your eschatology? Absolutely. Is it okay to have an eschatological view? I have one. When, how the kingdom's going to come? I have all that. But does that change for our disciples of what we ought to be doing as it draws closer? Absolutely not. Family, I will tell you, being ready, first and foremost, the very top of the list of being ready for the coming of Christ, is get right with God. Repent and believe the gospel. Get ready before it's too late. When Christ comes, it's over. Today or tomorrow, 50 years, 500 years, we don't know. Listen, in 500 years, if Christ comes back in 500 years, there'll be people on that day ready and some won't be ready. Whenever he comes. Don't be that person who's not ready. Be ready today. You're not going to be ready because you're deciphering Daniel or you're looking at Ezekiel, following some false teachers, false calls himself a prophet. He or she be ready when they read their Bibles, obey the gospel call to repent and believe, live faithfully, live on mission with Jesus till the end. That's what it means to be ready. Life for us is perpetually being ready because our robes are tucked in, right into our belt, our sleeves are rolled up, the porch light is on, and we are living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, living on mission with Christ, trusting him for our daily needs, demonstrating the gospel with generosity. We're declaring the gospel world that desperately needs to hear the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I mean, are we engaging with people, loving them, telling them about Jesus? Have you, if you're here today, are you ready? Have you repented of your sins and believed on Christ? If he comes and you haven't, it's too late. Trust Christ today. This morning, don't leave this building without bowing your knee to King Jesus who loved you and died for you and rose for you. 
Look at verse 37. It's an unthinkable statement that Jesus makes. If you didn't catch it when I read it, look at it now. Truly I say to you, truly, truly, this is, this is absolute. He, the master, when he gets home from the wedding feast, will dress himself for service and have them, who's them, the slaves, the servants, recline at table and he will come and serve them. What, what master would ever wear a servant's clothes? Or what master would ever invite his slaves to sit down at his own feast? What master would ever make himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant? Philippians 2. Though Jesus, in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the master. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to what? Be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, a, that's an upside down world. Jesus is going to tell his disciples at his last supper that he has come as one who serves. The king, the master, the lord. The lord of lords, the king of kings. Has come to serve his people. By serving them he saves them, he redeems them and he sets them free. Only God our savior would humble himself, serve others who would take off his outer robe and a posture on that, on that upper room and a posture of a slave and wash his disciples' feet. Only God, our Savior, will humble himself and take on the weakness and frailty of humankind in his incarnation. Only God, our Savior, would humble himself and serve us as our substitute by dying in our place on the cross. I don't think they got all that, but I'm sure after the gospel, after Christ died and rose, and they were filled with the Spirit, they could see that Jesus is talking about himself. He's worn the garments of servitude. He invited us to sit at his table where he feeds us because our souls are so needy. Served us unto death. Now we wait. We're ready, waiting to come again. Waiting for the day that we will enter into the fullness of of our master's joy. Are you ready? Verse 38, be watchful. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known the hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. We're not really sure third or, uh, excuse me, second or third watch, whether that's a Jewish watch or Roman watch, whether he's writing, uh, and it depends on what Luke is trying to say. But one thing we know, regardless of that, what watch, whether it's a Jewish watch or a, a Roman watch, uh, it's somewhere between midnight, which would be Roman time, and 2 a.m., which would be Jewish time. So somewhere in that time, somewhere, it makes it very clear, in the middle of the night, disciples must be ready because the return may be at any moment, in a deep, deep, evening when 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 normally you are resting you're not you're not up and being prepared therefore watchfulness and a constant vigilance is expected of Jesus' followers and the call is to be this call of, of readiness now is to be watchful keeping watch that you're prepared and not suffer when christ comes but you trusted him and rested in him and believe on him here Jesus is using again another unexpected arrival. This time the master, notice the text, the master is the one 
should have been up and watching, ready. Jesus extends his call of readiness by comparing to a thief robbing a house in the middle of the night. And the person who arrives is not there uh, uh, to be blessed as the door opens up, as the servants are there. But the person arriving now, he is there to do one thing, and that is to rob the house. Actually, the text in verse 40, excuse me, 39 at the end, it says, left his house to be broken into. Literally, that means dug through. Because in those days, you know, the houses were made of mud, and you would just actually break through the wall. Man would not leave his house knowing that a robber was coming by and was going to push right through his wall and rob his home. Disciples ought to be ready. The Son of Man will come at an unexpected hour. I heard a story this week in a newspaper, so it must be true. No, I'm kidding. This is a true story. There was a couple who parked their car. It was in England. A couple would park their car outside their home day after day, night after night, just regularly outside their house. One day when they woke up in the morning, they looked outside the window, and their car was gone. It had been stolen. A couple days later, the car reappeared right in the front of their house. Perfect condition, not a scratch. Inside, they found a note from a person who had taken the car, thinking, uh, you know, just thanking the couple for the use of the car, apologizing, saying, I'm sorry for any inconvenience. And then they said, in order to make matters right, we feel terrible about it, right? We're leaving for you two tickets for the theater. Sorry. The husband and wife then, a couple days later, night of the theater, went only to come home to find that the car thief had burglarized their house. Now, if the individual, you know, if, if the person who got the tickets had said, you know, I, I can imagine what this person is up to, I'm not leaving my house, they wouldn't have gone out to the theater. Took them completely by surprise. Jesus used this comparison of a thief, which is used in, old, in the New Testament in multiple places, that he will come at the time that is least expected. Thieves are covert, uh, uh, coverts. Operations. No one knows when they're coming. So it is with the second coming of Christ. No one knows when he will return. But there'll be loss. The house will be broken into. There'll be suffering on that day. When Jesus returns, people who are not ready will suffer eternal loss. His coming will bring about an everlasting destruction. Verse 40. You must you also must be ready or suffer loss for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This parable is about the Son of Man's return. He's going to return and bring the kingdom and condemn those who have not trusted him. Depending on your eschatology, I believe it's a millennial reign, the thousand year reign, but either way, the point is he's coming at an hour that you don't know. That second advent it's just as sure as the first Advent. So we're gathered together on Christmas Eve and celebrating the first Advent because we know about the birth of Christ. It is that sure, we are that sure, that assurance that he will come again. Daniel chapter 7. This is where Jesus picks up that title. It's his favorite title, Son of Man. I mentioned this before, but I got the verse up today. Daniel chapter 7. An Old Testament title, Son of Man, referred to the deity and glory of Christ in 
in particular his final triumph and victory. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that's Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Obviously not the first advent, right? In the first advent, it's a whole different ballgame. He came to an obscure place and a teenage girl, stepdad, Mary, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, no place for them in the end. We know the story, we're getting ready to celebrate it. A feeding trough, manger, a feeding trough, a stable, most likely even a cave. But a second coming will be visible, personal, and glorious. The scripture tells us that, uh, describes it as uh, the appearing, this is Titus 2, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Watching, diligently ready for him, rather than leaving the house unprotected, is how we are to avoid being unprepared for his coming again not not combing through the prophetic books not trying to figure out what's going on exactly the you know i I don't want to get too sidetracked but jesus god the son the eternal creator sovereign ruler of the universe Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels have nor the Son, but the Father only. That would stop you from buying all those books right there. Are we watchful? That's the point. Are we praying for the kingdom to come? Are we looking forward and seeing the kingdom expand? Asking God to expand his rule in our lives, in our community, in our churches around the world? Are you ready? Are you watchful? Are, are you you're caring for the needy? Are you taking care of the sick? You're feeding the hungry? Caring for children? Helping the elderly? Whatever God has given you the ability to do and opportunity to do? The admonition to believers remain watchful and vigilant by doing what you need to do to keep your home free from break-ins until the return of Christ. Don't doze off. Don't be preoccupied especially with things that have no eternal value at all. Don't chase after or have an excessive concern about stuff which results in fear and anxiety. Don't be careless, inattentive, unobservant by trying to find life and meaning by focusing on desires of what others have, what the world will offer you. We've talked about this. The kingdom of God's seekers set their hearts, their passions on the redeeming, saving, cleansing, empowering, love-producing reign of God in our lives. Thy kingdom come over the whole earth until Christ returns, where he will reign in righteousness and justice and sin will be eradicated and joy will be eternal. Paul calls it the blessed hope. Now, let me just, let me just before we get to our next point, let me just take a little sidebar. As I was studying this, thinking of, of all the commands and all the ways in which we are to be 
ready and, and what we ought to be doing. And all that stuff was passing through my head this week. I mean, the joy of, of Christ's return, there's so much could be said of that. But this is the verse that I was, a little bunny trail, but this is the verse that I was thinking of. It's in 2 Timothy. Paul talking about the return of Christ. And he says, therefore, well, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all those who loved what? His appearing. Paul's talking about that Roman athlete during the games, the laurel wreath given to the winners, a, triumph, a symbol of triumph and, and honor and victory. Paul says that crown, not a crown of peace, but a crown of righteousness. Why? Because, listen, family, Paul has already received the righteousness of Christ by faith. Jesus not only died to forgive us of our sins, but he lived the perfect life we could never live in our place. Dies in our place, lives the perfect life in our place. And when we place our faith and trust in him, it is Christ's perfect life, his righteousness that's given to us, imputed to our accounts. And Paul's looking forward to that day that when Christ will return and receive the righteous crown, when sin will be eradicated and we sin no more. It's easy, family, easy for me anyway, to look around and see the brokenness and the sin and the destruction of our world and look forward to the return of Christ. Wait eagerly watching But are we looking for that return with joy because our own hearts, our own sinful hearts, our own twisted things that we do and say and think will be eradicated? I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day I'm not sinning against my Savior and have to keep going back to the well and saying, I'm sorry. I look forward to that day. All true believers who earnestly seek him, who fight the good fight, finish the race, ready and watching for his return, being faithful to the end, have the confidence that one day we'll stand before the Lord and receive the crown of righteousness, his righteousness that will lead us into eternity where sin will be gone. So we ought to be ready, we ought to be watchful, and we ought to be faithful. Verse 41, Peter, got to give it to Peter. Peter says, Lord, are you telling us this parable or is this for everybody? I mean, there, I will give Peter a break. There were times that Jesus taught his disciples and the multitude and then took his disciples aside and said, you know, here's the explanation. Explanation. I get that. But Jesus also, when asked a question, the master teacher likes to ask a question. You ask me one, I'm asking you one. And Jesus responds with a question. Earlier parables about the wedding in the house that was robbed, and the emphasis was on, was on um, readiness and watchfulness. Here Jesus focuses on faithfulness. He says to Peter, who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Once again, the master is away from his house. He appoints other slaves as managers. They're stewards of his home, right? That's what stewards are. They're still servants, but the, he, he assigned one of his slaves, one of his servants, to be responsible, and he entrusted that slave, that servant, with his goods, the master's goods, to provide whatever needed in the estate to everyone who needs it, particularly food. 
If the steward did his stuff, you know, did his job wisely, faithfully, the household would flourish. And he would receive the master's praise when he got home. The steward didn't own the house, didn't, but ruled it and managed it. Everything belonged to the master. That's the point. The steward was called to be wise, gracious, kind, godly, and making sure everybody got what they needed. He was to take what was not his, but was the master's, and distribute it appropriately, and to use it wisely. Family, that same thing is true today. Everything you own, and everything I own, belongs to God. He's entrusted us as good stewards, with the responsibility of attentiveness and honoring the master and how we handle it matters. We've been entrusted with it. My house, my home, my life, my kids, all belongs to him. Even the air we breathe belongs to the Lord our God. Therefore, we are to exercise good stewardship for the glory of God, for the good of others. Again, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to seek the kingdom of God, to be rich toward God, the evidence of our generosity. If you're a faithful steward of the possessions that God has lended you, you'll gain your master's reward. And pastor elders that are here, guys are training, interns, this is true for the church. Responsible, good stewards of the, of the people to provide, to protect, to love, to care for, and to feed with the word of God. I think, I think I'm pretty sure almost every commentator I read mentions that in this passage. That Peter is asking as the apostles and then soon to be elders are to take good stewardship. To love, care, provide, and feed God's people. Verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Notice that. The, the, the reward for the faithfulness is increased responsibility to manage the house and to give more and more responsibility. He gets a promotion because of his faithfulness. His responsibilities have increased until the master comes home. A life that is lived out in seeking the kingdom of God is marked by this, this constant vigilance and watchfulness and faithfulness of God. Stuff that he has given us stewardship over. The Lord blesses those who wait. Verse 45. What about the unfaithful ones? But if that servant says to himself, we're not talking about the early servant, another servant, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. So now, excuse me, but the same servant, now is a different story. This is not just the cats away, what do they say, the mice will play. This servant not only doesn't carry out his responsibility properly, but takes advantage of his position, and he treats their servants with extreme abuse, and he beats them. If that's not enough, he doesn't live responsibly. He's eating and drinking and getting drunk. Rather than carrying out his responsibilities, he's doing the opposite, not caring for the master's things. He's not even caring for the servants in the master's estate. He abuses his position. It's all about him. Unfortunately, this is how people act as they march along the road to destruction. They mock. They abuse. 
those who created in the Imago Dei. They mock the actual fact that Jesus is coming. They abuse those in the church. They abuse those who they have authority over. They squander their resources. They're not faithful in serving Christ. They've not repented. They have not trusted the Lord. This servant is totally a concern. He doesn't care one iota about the master's return. He doesn't care one iota about being a good steward in the master's estate. But it won't last forever. Verse 46, they are reckoning. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and he will what? Cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's a little severe. I bet you those who are being beaten down and totally abused don't think so. <laughs> some, some kind of judgment in the same, maybe a little more severe. The picture that Jesus is drawing for us is, is that it's, it's a picture of rejection. Notice what it says. Cut him to pieces and put him, reject him, push him away and put him with the unfaithful, the unbelieving. In fact, dismemberment, dismemberment is the most graphic way to, to express rejection. And I think maybe even the apostles, uh, the uh, disciples are thinking earlier when Jesus said, don't fear him who could kill you, fear him who could kill you and then throw you what? Into eternal hell. The faithful slave is promoted. The second servant takes advantage of his master's absence. Serping his rights and authority and privileges, exalting himself. Verse 47 gets not good, it keeps going. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. That, that's the other servant I was talking about. 48a. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. So, Two servants here, illustrating what Jesus is trying to teach, one who knowingly and one who unknowingly violates the master's will. Jesus is, is assigning very clearly here culpability in proportion to the degree of knowledge. A slave with knowledge receive a severe beating, a slave with no knowledge or little knowledge, a lighter beating. So there's a difference between the unfaithful and the ignorant, and the judgment is according to knowledge, right? They're still going to get a beating, one's light, one's severe, that has Old Testament roots in it. We already learned in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus said it would be more bearable on the day of Sodom than for that town where he showed up preaching and declaring the gospel. It would be more bearable on the day of judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. So there's this comparison. There's this, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't, res uh, what does it say, absolve punishment. But the ignorant will receive less and the ones who know will receive more. Family, everyone knows something of the gospel here. Everyone. And God will hold us accountable for the knowledge we have. Romans 1.18. Everyone to whom was given, look at verse 48, closes. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. From him to whom thy master, they, the masters, collectively they, entrusted much, they will demand the more. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's the principle? The principle is 
God's will is in trust, is in stewardship. The more you know God's will, the more you're required to do it, to follow it, to respond to it. Privileges increase responsibility. Hearing the gospel, listen, never leaves anyone. Hearing the truth of the scripture and the gospel never leaves anyone neutral. You're either blessed by it or cursed by it. The more you keep hearing the word and you keep hardening your heart, the greater the judgment will be. The people in church are hearing the word and then the unfaithful servants are, 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 are worse. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a frightening text. No neutrality of Christ. The gospel, you hear it to your joy, to your delight, to your pleasure, to your everlasting kindness, or you hear the gospel being preached, your judgment and everlasting darkness. This ain't me saying this. This is Jesus. Keep hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel. Get ready. Trust in Christ. But let me ask this question. Who among us today, who among us this morning can say that we have always, always, always been ready? Or who among us can say that we've always made the best, the best use, the best use of all that God has given to us? Or who among us could say that we have lived in the full expectation, always living in the full expectation of the coming of Christ? Family, that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. A master, a king. One who serves, one who suffers. The punishment we deserve for our sins. The one who dies on the cross, rises back to life. In the gospel according to Mark, the Bible tells us that Jesus cried out on the cross as he took our sin, took our rebellion, took our faithlessness, and he was punished and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, he was cast out and abandoned by the Father so that we can be brought in. He was cut off from eternal, the source of eternal rest so that we could have rest. He was the sacrifice so we wouldn't be sacrificed. Be the sacrifice. Isaiah said that Christ was cut off from the land of the living, from life itself, stricken for the sins of his followers. He was cut off. He was cut off for life itself. He was cut to pieces in some sense so that we could be made whole. He was cut off so that we could be brought in. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was cast out so that we can come into a relationship with God. Family, Jesus Christ is the one and only true and faithful servant who took our unfaithfulness upon himself, who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Family, life is about knowing Christ. Life is about sharing Christ. Life is about seeing people come to faith in Christ, sending treasures to heaven, seeing people grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, being ready for our master to come home. Are you ready? Are you ready? Will you say, yes, I'm ready? Lord, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, because of your love, because of your grace, because of your faithfulness to us in the gospel, we'll live to serve you. We'll live to serve others. We'll live to serve the flock of God. We'll live on mission, demonstrating, declaring the gospel. Are you ready, family? The band's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us through a song called All I Have is Christ. 
It is our prayer this morning that as we sing this song in our words on a screen only, I have no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Behold, there I, held God's, I beheld God's love. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath I deserve. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. God, we pray that as we sing now in response to your word, that our lives will be hidden in Christ, that he will be our hope, our joy, and that God will be ready from this moment on by your grace as we look to honor, to worship, treasure you above all things. Help us keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, looking forward to his return, where he will not only eradicate sin in my life, but Lord, uh, in all the earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.